Notebook on Cities and Culture's upcoming third season will take it to Japan, Mexico City, Vancouver, and elsewhere, if and only if we can raise $4,000 to fund it. The Kickstarter drive is going on right now until December 21st. For details on how you can help the show go fully international, visit colinmarshall.org. This episode of Notebook on Cities and Culture is brought to you by the Brad and Laramie on Movies podcast, featuring talk on film, DVD, and industry happenings, available on iTunes everywhere. And by Gail Poole's book, Faint Praise, The Plight of Book Reviewing in America, essential reading for everyone interested in the state of book criticism today. Season 2 of Notebook on Cities and Culture is brought to you by Carl Haley and Daniel Murphy. Examine my own reading habits on the internet, and I, th- I think about what reads well on the internet, and it leads me to believe that we're we're getting into a new golden age of the essay because of how we read on the internet. Do you think that's true? You know, it's turning out to be true, uh, more true than people um, suggested to me when we first started out. Uh, the, at the very beginning, people said nobody reads long form on the, on the internet. This this is a crazy idea. This is a dumb idea. We you need to. Be short. People are sneaking the reading at work, um, and they and they don't want to get caught, and they don't right. They can't they can't get sucked into a. Uh, I mean, we've we've published some, one piece that was twenty thousand words, several that were you know fourteen and fifteen thousand words, um, and people do not seem to mind it. Um, you know, there's some drop off. We can tell that when there's when there's drop off um, uh, in on the very very long pieces, but the three thousand word piece, the four thousand word piece, five thousand word piece. Um, People seem to be uh, seem to be uh, very happy to have them. It's Notebook on Cities and Culture. I'm Colin Marshall, sitting down here in Silver Lake with Tom Lutz, who teaches creative writing at the University of California, Riverside. He's the author of Crying American Nervousness, Doing Nothing, and Cosmopolitan Vistas. He's also the founding editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books, which, I mean, you started when I was wrapping up my time with a day job, but... I feel like in a day job, all I wanted was long-form pieces, essays. You know, I'd go to longform.org or longreads or the New Yorker or the New York Review of Books. It seems like if you're, if you're going to sneak reading at work, that's, you, you want a, an absorbing piece that's a few thousand words, right? I think that the that authors want to be able to write what they need to write about whatever the subject is, whatever the, they, their essay is based on, whatever the review, review essay is um, uh, a lot of people, the, the pros all say how many words and, you know, what's the deadline? And my response is always I want the material to determine the length, not the length to determine the material. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we let we let people go as long as they need. And that um, I think has been very successful. That is, we don't, we don't, you know, if people really want guidelines, I give them to them. But um, since the writer is uh, is making very fundamental decisions about what's important and what's not important, I, I think that the the essay length uh, just simply reflects that, and and in that way, the, the the readerly experience is a reflection of what that writer is doing their best to get across. In your experience so far, then editing the Los Angeles Review of Books, what have you learned about how many words material needs? You know, what what are the demands of the variety of material you've published as far as the length they need, and if that length is a readable length, and and and, and what the drop off or lack thereof tells you? Well, I th- it ver- it varies very much piece to piece. Um, if you're writing uh, fifteen hundred words of, about in, in a dull way about a dull subject. <laughs> People are going to drop off very quickly. One hundred words about a dull subject in a dull way that aren't going to stick with you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, uh, and um, you know, one of my one of my favorite pieces we did this year was uh, Paul Mandelbaum uh, went to Romania, where his uh, where his mother grew up uh, in the in the shadow of the Nazis, um, escaped the Nazis, and it was a meditation on his mother and his mother's life. And at the same time, he went around and interviewed uh, all of the great. Romanian writers, um, and so it's a piece about Romanian literature, and it's a piece about his mother, and it took uh, it took I think seventeen thousand words for that to come all the way around, uh, and I don't think anybody minded that. Um, not a lot of people jump 
at the chance of reading an essay about Romanian literature. <laughs> I don't know why, because I love Romanian culture, but uh, I love Romanian film. I love Romanian writing. Um, so for me, it was an uh, you know I was I was in from the start. But uh, and I think that in a case like that, people have to have some pre-existing interests to draw them in, or just a kind of curiosity about world literatures or something else. Um, and that that's. That's uh, that. Once people were in that, they seemed to go to the end of it um, mm. because it was a fascinating combination of things. And he's a great writer, so the, the, it didn't it didn't matter how long it was. Mm. People were in for the ride. I've thought often reading essays elsewhere. Ten times out of ten, rather read someone writing about something that interests them and writing passionately with interest than them sort of manhandling a subject they think might interest me or. A reader, you mentioned your love of Romanian culture, and that seems to have facilitated this piece on Romanian literature getting its way into the Los Angeles Review of Books. And I, I, I've thought of write what you want to read as, as such a, a guiding principle for writing. How much is publish what you want to read a guiding principle for you as an editor? You know, we get pitched a uh, hundred pitch. We get a hundred pitches a day, um, and uh, and obviously we can't we can't do all of them. And so when I'm um, going through those pitches, obviously the things that make me perk up um, are the things that we, we consider. Mm. But we have you know uh, a series of senior editors. We have um, uh, people uh, reading through those pitches, all of whom um, have their own uh, commitments and their own uh, passions. And, and they choose things that I might not have. Uh, it's a collective uh, enterprise. We, we, uh, you know, I'm 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 a dictator when I have to be, <laughs> but uh, but basically, um, the uh, Matthew Spector, who's our fiction editor, decides um, with Darcy Cosper and Clarissa Romano, our two other fiction editors, they decide what what kinds of things they want to cover, who they want, which pitches perk them up, and uh, and they and they go with them. And I and I never say no to them. Mm. Um, Evan Kindley, who's uh, and Julie Klein. Who carve up uh, a lot of the nonfiction stuff, and Jonathan Hahn, who does politics, um, they they make their they make their picks as well. Um, I then add to their workload by seeing things that I think we should we should do as as well that they hadn't that they hadn't noticed or they hadn't they hadn't been interested in. But uh, there, you know, many heads are are better than one uh, in a, in an enterprise like this. And I do want the Los Angeles Review of Books to have uh, to be a, a, a an umbrella. Um, I don't want to predetermine um, what people are going to look at by always having the same political um, set of views. Although, obviously, when I make a decision about the intellectual content of something, um, that may mean that some kind of Tea Party manifesto is not going to make it <laughs> through the cut, and that's a political decision as well as a as a, as an intellectual one. But um, that you know, uh, so I'm not. We're not free of politics, uh, political leanings, but but I, I try to you know have a range of things from from way way left um, Marxist um, to middle left to middle of the road. Um, mm -hmm. We're doing two pieces on um, uh, this week on uh, that our law editor Don Franzen has uh, uh, put together. One is Brian Garner, who is a uh, Kind of on the Scalia end of constitutional interpretation, uh, and he is going to and 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 Brian Garner kind of tears apart uh, a book that then we did an interview with the author, um, and uh, we have we have uh, what is I guess one of the more conservative uh, perspectives on constitutional interpretation, back and forth with um, uh, a very uh, one could say liberal although a, a complicated uh, intellectual perspective on the constitution that doesn't really fit one or the other of those spectrums but is identified more with the with the with the left end of uh, constitutional interpretation this this sounds to me like an exciting article to read and the prospect of a los angeles review of books was you know exciting when i first heard about it before i even heard you were starting it i would think to myself very often why isn't there a los angeles review of books like there's a new york review of books i read it online all, quite a bit and enjoy many an article there but it, it mystified me for a long time you know, I would fantasize just about there being a thing called the Los Angeles Review of Books because of Los Angeles being the city in America that fascinates me the most and books being the medium that, that probably do. But 
why wasn't there a Los Angeles Review of Books? Why was this? Why was this title free for you to take when you were starting a journal? You know, I, one of my books, as, as, as you mentioned, it's called Cosmopolitan Vistas, is about regionalist literature, um, primarily nineteenth, uh, late nineteenth, early twentieth century, but running through to the to the present. And one of the interesting things that I found was that. Um, um, this is maybe too recondite, but let, you can you can cut it out if it it's is. It's never too recondite. <laughs> but uh, there's a guy named John T. Frederick who, in 1915, uh, is an undergraduate at the University of Iowa. He and his professor uh, are part of that first group of people at Iowa who are interested in contemporary writing and are think of it as a as a reasonable scholarly pursuit. I think the professor was actually a medievalist, mm. um, but they were they would get together and they would do. Con- Share their stories and their poems and uh, and, and new writing. Uh, he started a journal called The Midland, which was the first of the regionalist small magazines, um, and it had a kind of Hamlin Garland like manifesto about um, about you know New York hegemony over the world of publishing and why why um, the the middle of the country needed to speak out um, and why that we they needed their own organs so that they weren't completely controlled by New York publishing. When Frederick wanted to publish his own novels. He went to Knopf and he published with Knopf. And he, right, he had his own publishing company at that time called The Midland, right? And that was publishing Midwestern writers for the Midwest, but that's not where he wanted to be. (laughs) So it's a, you know, there's a, there's always a very double relationship for anybody that's not in New York to New York publish, the New York publishing world. Uh, When I started Los Angeles Review Books, I really, I understood that. And I picked the name in part because it has a, a slight steampunk. (laughs) <laughs> kind of quality to yes, it, right? Yeah. It's very. I never thought about it that way, but well put. <laughs> Thanks. It's a little, yes, it's very traditionalist. I mean, as opposed to, I don't know, N plus one, the rumpus. Right. Uh, the, the, the millions, right? These are, it's a throwback kind of title. And I, because I, in all sorts of ways, am interested in the tradition and where, and, and, and where it is moving, but I'm interested in where it is moving. So, right, um, right. the, the name was free, I think in part because, uh, when people thought about what it, how you do a, uh, a a literary magazine on the West Coast, nobody thought um, of Los Angeles as a literary capital. Mm-hmm. Somewhat unfairly, since it is the biggest book market in the world, mm-hmm. nobody thought of it as a, as a book capital, and so nobody thought of it as the kind of right place to locate one's relation to the literary. Um, I thought it was time that 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 people did mm-hmm. immediately. Uh, our readership was global. Um, some fifteen percent of our readers are in are in Southern California. Um, some thirty percent are overseas. So we are the Los Angeles Review of Books. We do think we have a, a certain kind of West Coast perspective. Most of our editors are are here. Um, not all, but most are. And uh, and that and that is uh, it does. Give a different slant on the on the world and on on the relationship of tradition and the new and the relationship of high and low and the relation you know these these uh, these kinds of things then then uh, one finds in uh, in the in the elite New York um, journals and magazines and publishing houses so I I think that you know it, ma- it made sense for us uh, on a number of levels it's from Los Angeles it's not about Los Angeles and it's not for Los Angeles. But I, I would say being from Los Angeles makes it, it, it entails a certain internationalism. I mean, the city has drawn me here because you know America's claims on it seem so few. It's 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 the city that's a world in itself. To quote that billboard at LAX with Avia Ragosa's face on it. Do you agree that when you're when you're running a journal out of Los Angeles, it's automatically international. It's automatically global because Los Angeles is is itself global, and there's there's nothing any of us are going to do about that. Nothing I would want to do about that. That's why I'm here. Yes, although you know, it's uh, we don't have uh, the, as sizable a Hmong population, for instance, uh, as Minneapolis, or sure. as, as as sizable as Somali population as Minneapolis. So, I mean, uh, it's hard to find a, a, an American city that's not global in, the, in those terms. It's true that Los Angeles embraces its relation to the global in ways that not every city does. Uh, it's true that um, Los Angeles's idea of um, its own global nature, I think, is different than New York's idea of its own global nature. 
just to take two examples in New York, the kind of global reach of, of high culture is, um, is a, is a great strength, um, for New York culture. And everybody understands that, you know, who is Salman Rushdie? He's a New Yorker, right? Uh, in Los Angeles, uh, our kind of sense of what it make, what makes us a global city has more to do with taco trucks. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, and, uh, and Korean, um, uh, spas and, and this kind of thing than it does than it does uh, uh, simply a kind of high culture um, um, uh, middle class upper middle class uh, international bourgeoisie uh, notion of what of how art works and how how culture works and that's something else that fascinates me about Los Angeles and I think many people who who live here it does is is the fact that there's these high culture low culture divisions you find in other places Los Angeles has this sort of in, indifference like the universe itself to whether culture is high <laughs> or low it's just there's something freeing about it freedom is a little bit of a buzzword in that context but i personally enjoy the divisions being lifted in the way they are here do you find a downside to that you've been here longer than i have no i don't see any possible downside to that i um no, I mean I'm very much a kind of let a thousand flowers bloom kind of person in in general. Um, there's there's no question that if one thinks about what 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 non high culture means, it's so many different things, right? It's, it's the World Wrestling Federation uh, as well as um, the the comic book, right? It's not it's not one, it's not one kind of thing. Those are those are very different forms of culture and they have different audiences. Um, what we're interested in is um, mix, mixing up uh, mixing up the, the what we offer people in order to mix up audiences in order to have those audiences um, kind of miscegenate mm. um, and, uh, and, and, and let them let them find out about each other, let them bump into each other, let them uh, glean from each other. Mm. I think of Essay writing today, the best essays I read are are all about connection. They they have a subject, they connect it to other subjects, they connect those subjects to the reader. They the essayist connects it to themselves the be, the best can. I think of that in my own practice of essay writing. I think of I think of essays as connecting, but also I think of the best essayists as as writers who can make any subject into a nexus of all subjects. Do, do you think that's true? I think of literature as a, a cosmopolitan activity it is it is um when when the, the anti-literary is didactic mm. didactic is always the enemy of the literary the opposite of didactic is a kind of openness and so you find in the great uh great literature always the 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 author of a of a, of a great novel looks at side a looks at side b looks mm. at side c and um and does not adjudicate the claims of these of these conflicting social groups that the novel brings into play with each other, mm. um, and it's that lack of uh, judgment, that openness to possibility. It's not a complete openness. Um, it's not. It's not like the Ku Klux Klan is just another way to be in the world, right? It's not. It's not a complete openness. It's. Uh, but it's. A, it's an openness to the the kind of fundamental debates about fundamental human issues um, as they as they as they um, are articulated by people who are trying to do their best to figure it out that's that's what that's what literature is for that's why literature does things that no and and the essay as one of the major literary forms the novel is another poetry is as a third they, these are these are forms that are designed to um, uh, as you as you suggest to connect rather than to um, Sloth off, uh, rather than to um, to to make a decision about any fundamental issue. Mm -hmm. If you if you have uh, you know for instance the Thomas Dixon's novels in the nineteen twenties, um, which were pro Ku Klux Klan, um, mm -hmm. just because I, I I just used that as an example, those novels are are um, are not considered great literature, and they're not considered great literature because he had a he was arguing for one side in an ongoing cultural debate of his time. Mm -hmm. um, the Harlem Renaissance novels that were published at around the same time. There's some of those are not are not great literature either because they were, had a very clear program, um, but a lot of them are because they were very very open to um, and much more open than uh, the other novels of their day to what the the competing claims of black and white culture or uh, nativist black culture and immigrant. 
West Indian black culture uh, or bourgeois black culture and lower class black culture. And they looked at all of the, the kind of competing uh, claims and, and interests and desires of these cultures and said, uh, this is, this is why they are in conflict, not this is how you should make your mind up about that conflict. And this brings me to the idea of the review of, of reviews of book reviews. People will see a title like the Los Angeles review of books or indeed the New York review of books. They'll see review and they'll put that in another context and think, Oh, book reviews, judgments, recommendations, uh, castigations, what have you. I learned about the coming of the Los Angeles review of books with a room full of other people at the uh, association of writers and writing programs, uh, conference in, in Washington, DC a few years back when there was a panel on book reviews. I was there, you were there. And I expected a little more from the panel. There was a lot of shrugging up there. It's like, well, I guess, I guess, I guess I run book reviews. You know, yeah, there's maybe an audience for book reviews. I don't know. And I had to ask, I don't really ask questions of panels, least of all at, at an event like that. But I had to ask, or I had to make a point and say, Hey, I'm a consumer of book reviews. I read them all the time. That's maybe the form I read most is the book review. And the fact of the matter is if book reviews aren't getting read, it's because the book reviews are crappy. Uh, that's there, there's, there seems to be, I don't know if the, there's a lot of debate over whether book reviews have gotten worse or better in the last hundred or so years, but they seem to accept that point, all those editors up there. And then you later made a point uh, in the room that you were starting up a Los Angeles review of books where the, the you didn't say this specifically, but the implicit promise is where the reviews won't be crappy, you know, where, <laughs> where they're not going to be 400 words of uh, yay or nay, thumbs up, thumbs down. And I want to ask if you think what book reviews have, have become in the main, is that form... Is there a problem with the form? I tend to think there is, just because judgments of the kind they, they track toward are not very interesting, inherently not interesting. Do you think that reviews as traditionally conceived are not the best way to go about writing about books? Well, uh, there are 17 answers to this question. Yes. Let me, number one. <laughs> one, <by> one. <laughs> uh, number one is I... Um, there are lots of uh, there are lots of sorts of, int- of reviews, the, the pre- publication tr- reviews like uh, Kirkus and uh, Publishers Weekly, they serve a very specific purpose. Um, they do tend to be thumbs up, thumbs down. That is, they will give a number of stars, uh, right? They will they will uh, recommend them for all readers or for certain readers, this kind of thing. So they, they have, they, they carry a, a strong recommendation uh, and they're, they're, they're very, very brief. Uh, they're incredibly useful for all sorts of people. Um, the, the, Newspaper book review uh, does a number of different things. Um, one is uh, it uh, allows a person to be able to talk about a book without reading it. <laughs> yes, we, we underestimate that advantage at our peril, I suppose. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's a, and and not just to talk about it. You know, that that's that, that's the snide version of it, but also to kind of uh, we can't all read everything. Um, I, I read for a living, and I never even close to reading enough. Um, and, uh, and most people don't read for a living. They have other, they have other lives. Uh, and so the, the book review is a way to kind of keep and keep up with literary culture. Uh, and, and, and to that extent, uh, it can be, it can be brief. It can be judgmental. It can do all sorts of things that, uh, for the most part, we're not that interested in doing it at, at LARB, but, um, the, so I haven't. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I don't think it. When you, the way you ended your question was, is this the best way to run a literary culture? <laughs> and uh, and I think not. That is that what we what what people really want, uh, or what what a culture needs, is a an ongoing serious conversation about its own cultural life, and that is uh, that's what you know we hope to be doing. Uh, when we're at our best, and and that requires uh, something besides, um, you know, the literary equivalent of Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> and more, more than the, the the problems of of the verdict, which tends to be the least enduring of all elements of a review, is the fact that you know I I enjoy reading reviews from the New York Times Book Review, but some weeks more than others, it seems like the reviewers re- writing the articles themselves don't. I mean, they kind of care, but they don't really. I mean, they they sort of they 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 don't feel 
the writer does not feel particularly invested in the subject or the book being written about sometimes. I can take that beyond the New York Times. I mean, it's, it's the, there's a sense of, as I said before, the shrug, like the undertone of many, many review I read, not in the Los Angeles Review of Books, you know, elsewhere. It's, it's, it's like even the, the reviewer kind of doesn't care sometimes. Do you sense this? Well, I don't, I, I, that's not a, that's not a general sense of mine. No. Um, and you know, some of my best friends, quite literally, write those reviews. <laughs> yeah, so they, they, they mean, you mean they write reviews? They they write the reviews where you sense they might not care about no, the book, no, or yeah, no, no, not at all. I meant they they write reviews for the for the New York Times book right. review. They well, write, many of and, those are good. They're probably yeah. writing good ones. And exactly, they, those are the those are the good those are the good people. And the LA Times uh, uh, book review um, pages. They, they, these are the, I think that the practice, the kind of standard practice of assigning a book. To a person who seems to make sense, you know, to the editor for that book, uh, encourages um, people to end up having to talk about a book that they probably were not, they might not have been thrilled about. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that they don't care about it. Um, it just means that the book really didn't, didn't, didn't uh, rock their boat. That's all. Um, and so, yeah, there that that that's that's because the book was assigned. That gives a uh, a kind of objectivity, which is a a, a journalistic goal. Uh, to the process, uh, we, 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 you have an expert in a field and they're reading a book in their field, whatever that field is. Um, and, uh, and that, and that should generate a, uh, a more, um, a less predetermined verdict and a less predetermined reading of the, of the text. So that's the, that's the idea. And so that, that's the opposite of saying, uh, you know, when, when, when people say, say to me, um, you know, I'd love to write for, for you, I say, about what? You know what? 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 What do you want to? What do you want to do? And when somebody writes something great for me, I always go back to them and say, uh, "What do you, What do you want to do next?" Right. Right. Are they? Are people sometimes unprepared for for you to ask about what? Do they expect to? They expect you to have certain things you need their you need to have written about, and you'll assign it to them. I mean, does that question surprise them? Most in most cases, for um, professional writers, mm. it, it surprises them in a nice way, mm. and they and they think. Oh, okay. Let me let me figure it out. Michael Tolkien, for instance, I said, "What you know? What do you want to write about?" And he said, uh, "Lewis Auchincloss." Right. That was the first the first thing he wrote for us. Um, and uh, now he's he's writing a piece for us about uh, Willa Cather's The Professor's House, and that's just because he's excited about it right at this moment. That's what he wants. That's what he wants to write about. And so for him, it was uh, it was uh, he just he uh, as the minute I asked him, I watched him think about it. And he uh, and he and he just didn't, he was ready to go with that. Mm. Um, now, uh, freelance journalism is a tough, tough life at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife is a freelance journalist. Um, uh, I know this um, very, very firsthand. And um, of course, she's thrilled to write for us mm. <laughs> because it's not um, uh, it's not getting assigned. Uh, mm-hmm. She's writing about her her the thing she's passionate about. Um, um, but I, I do find sometimes with some with some professional freelancers that the question um, is just a little aggravating. It's like, come on, I'm trying to make a living here. Tell me what you want. I'll do it. No, um, see, they have a more utilitarian perspective to the whole enterprise. They are trying to stay alive. Right. right? Utilitarian <laughs> is a guess. Exactly. And so I, I understand that. And, uh, and I sometimes uh, say, well, how about X um, as a result? Mm-hmm. But um, – but but in by and large writers um go into writing because they are not uh entirely equipped to follow orders <laughs> yeah, so, so. <laughs> and so uh that they uh, most most writers find this uh not just just fun and and uh, and exciting tell me about some example some of the examples doesn't even have to be the 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 pinnacle of what you've seen i'm not going to put you on the spot for that but some of the examples of of pieces you've run in the Los Angeles Review of Books that, that have surprised you in the way they have elevated the, the form of the book essay, done things you didn't expect. Uh, p- pure surprise, you know what I mean? For instance, our very first piece by Ben Ehrenreich was a piece called The Death of the Book. And we thought this would be a very funny <laughs> <laughs> way to start off a, a book review. And uh, he had told me that he had uh, he was thinking about The Death of the Book. Mm. And and um, wanted that that thought it, that's what he wanted to write about, you know. It, it's, it starts off in a very funny way. It says uh, I, I googled uh, last week. I googled the phrase "the death of the book," mm-hmm. and there were eleven point two million entries. 
And then I Googled it again yesterday and there were 13 million entries. <laughs> and, um, and I had, gave a talk, uh, six months ago already somewhere about the Los Angeles Review Books. And I thought it'd be fun to just check on the number. It was up to 36 million <laughs> entries. Well, uh, several million of them were references to Ben Ehrenreich's piece. So that, that, that explains part of it. But, um, he, uh, so he was, he was interested in the general phenomenon. He was interested in the talk about it, but he was also interested in looking at Bruno Schultz, fiction writer, uh, from middle, middle of the 20th century, who he found re really saying very interesting things about the book and about the disappearance of the book in a somewhat kind of, um, fantastic, uh, metafictional, you know, postmodern kind of novel. Um, and, uh, and and uh, and it became a very uh, you know very very interesting essay about Bruno Schultz and not about the death of the book in a, in the standard in the standard way um, that people have decided they're going to attack that subject um, and so uh, I, I loved that I loved the the uh, you know you could almost see it happening um, in his in his mind uh, which is what I, what what a great essay does right it 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 it, it, it uh, represents itself. As the thinking of an individual evolving and developing over the course of the essay, mm -hmm. and uh, and and so that there's a beautiful, beautiful um, piece um, that was not what I expected when we agreed that he was. That's what he was going to do at all. It's it's the essays that reveal the thinking of the writer, but the thinking itself takes a turn that. Well, my, when I read one of these essays, you know, the thinking itself has to take a turn that my own thinking wouldn't have, yes. and we're all literally unique so our thinking is all going to connect to go back to that uh, mm -hmm. verb to different to different areas so i mean what you what you need in an essayist is you need a a well furnished well experienced mind but writing with the clarity and the honesty and perhaps the willingness maybe there's not always the willingness in the book review world to to lay out your thinking clearly to reveal to reveal honestly how you are thinking about a book or a writer or the death of the book i mean there's a certain opacity to to some book essays that I read. Again, sketching out this is the problem I don't have in Los Angeles Review of Books essays. Tell me, as as a reader of essays on books, what you think about that. I mean, the, the, have you seen in the in the reviews and the essays that dissatisfy you uh, opacity, unwillingness to reveal the sort of paths, the threads of thought on the part of the writer? The essay as a form covers so much ground. And even essays that have at their center books and reading uh, come in so many different uh, varieties. Um, I'm 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 happy to have uh, an essay, for instance, on. Um, well, let's just say the. Well, it's I guess, I guess that's not true. <laughs> I wouldn't be happy with that. I was trying to figure out a, a topic where it would be okay with me if the if the author of the essay did not reveal themselves at all. Oh, I see. Um, and and I think that there, I think that I can imagine that happening. I'm not coming up with an example right at the moment, mm -hmm. but um, let's say um, it was. It's a it's a story about um, actual actual amounts of money that writers are making mm -hmm. per word uh, done over a hundred year period, mm -hmm. um, and therefore the kind of possibility that that the writers that we want to support are making an adequate living at this mm -hmm. point in America, or whether we need to do something to help them. Which is, of course, one of the reasons I started Los Angeles Review Books as well. I, I was I was uh, appalled at the the idea that writing should be free on the internet and nobody right. should get paid for writing on the internet. And and um, and you know I'm I'm not doing a good enough job at it yet in getting people paid um, uh, what they what they deserve. I mean, and to a certain sense, they'll, ne they'll never get paid what they deserve. Mm -hmm. But to get to kind of pay top dollar, um, we haven't raised quite enough money to do that yet. But I'm hoping to. So an essay like that—that is—that is really a, that's a, about it's about books, it's about book culture, it's about, um, but it's factual. It, one would want it to be factual, and um, I'm not sure that we would need a rant from that freelance writer who wrote it about um, <laughs> about their own life. Yeah. Uh, although it might that might be a fun uh, disjunctive uh, element in the, in the essay, it wouldn't be necessary to it. Mm. Now, when, when, uh, when somebody's engaged with a, 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 a great novel, uh, I think it's uh, almost always a mistake to try to remain hidden mm. in that, despite uh, that kind of disappearance of the author. Mm. Um, I think that is, I think that the, that the, that the, that our 
desire to interact with another mind about books is is as um is as strong a desire as our desire to have some new ways of thinking about that book or some just to get uh, to get uh, somebody else you know to get a uh, a read of it to get a a decoding of some of its um more uh difficult passages or any anything like any of the other reasons we we look to to the criticism mm-hmm. i think that that kind of interaction with another mind is 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 central and therefore the re- revelation is part of doing it well you have spoken before and, and written before about the divide uh, between uh, let's say popular writing about books and academic writing about books and and you've talked about how there's interesting academic writing about books inaccessible to the public, generally speaking, whether whether they can't understand it or literally can't get it or don't know where to find it. Tell me what potential you see in filling in or bridging that gap between popular book writing and academic book writing. What what, what needs to be done to get a greater flow between them or to hybridize? Or I don't even know how you think of it metaphorically. I, I think of it... Um Less metaphorically than 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 actually practically, I, I when I wrote my dissertation uh, uh, when I was working on my doctorate, I I was already very interested in the idea that I could write this for a general audience. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to be for a general audience, and it was about the year nineteen oh three, which is kind of fun mm-hmm. as an idea. It seemed to me a book about a single year. It was also about a, a nervous disease that was now extinct, so it had a kind of fun. Uh, medicine is quackery um, <laughs> thing, but that the disease was also what led Freud to his concept of neurosis. And the mm-hmm. disease was called neurasthenia. So it was a you know I thought it was a, a fun inter- book of of interest to in, to any educated reader. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, at the, by the time I wrote it, I was severely professionally deformed as a writer. <laughs> professionally deformed. <laughs> you know, I had learned how to write academies, and um, and to you know as much as I tried. Mm-hmm. I hadn't I hadn't conquered it. I then tried to write some books for a general audience with with um, mainstream publishers, not with um, not with academic houses, and uh, I you know with varying success um, and uh, still a little bit too academic for a lot of readers. And and in fact, I kind of retreated from the first one of those and wrote an academic book next because I was so I felt so hamstrung by not being able to use all the shorthands I had I had developed. As an academic, uh, that I, I kind of wanted to to work those muscles again uh, as well. Uh, so I, I've, I've been going back and forth trying to do those different kinds of writing. We, we those of us who are in academia, um, are not always that very good at figuring out what a general reader needs in the way of one can think of it as translation. I guess I'm now I'm getting metaphorical, but it, it is it is it is a, a form of translation. Um, and what what a, what uh, a general needs in the way of a kind of uh, the pace of idea content in a piece, and and that is uh, is something that we're that we continue to struggle with. I know a lot of people who I've talked to who think that the Los Angeles Review of Books is way too over intellectualized and what, way what too. They, what do they point to if that's their argument? Um, uh, they don't they don't point to specific pieces, but people say, um, yeah, no, I tried to read it. Good luck with that. It's it seems seems great, I, oh, but geez. it's over it's over my head. Um, and uh, and and th- I mean, to a certain extent, that's we are every every publication is over some heads. Um, highlights for children is over <laughs> over the heads of some younger children. Some right? Of those puzzles are hard <laughs> if you've tried doing them in the doctor's office. Yeah, of course you're worried about your health at that sure. point. So, uh, but it's a uh, it's it's a it's a it's a constant struggle. I do I I do think that. Uh, in particular in the humanities, obviously uh, physicists don't worry about this so much. Uh, medical researchers do not worry about whether their medical articles can be read by the average citizen or not. Um, but um, because the literary world and because and, – and I, and I do think that there's always going to be a place for academic work about literature, which the average person cannot read. I'm, I'm very happy to have that happening. In fact, what, what I'm interested in doing is finding those – those parts of academic discourse that I hope more people w- could know about mm-hmm. and figuring out how to present them to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not the same as kind of um, thinking that 
literary studies in the academy should be open access to all people that we should that there should be no jargon there should be no theoretical words used and all, all this kind of stuff which i think is a silly argument there's no nobody says that about the medical research there's no reason to say it about literary research um academic academic jargons are very very useful they're they're incredibly um powerful tools for understanding and for communication um and it's not necessary for everybody to know them for them to be that but I do want to figure out ways in which we can we can um, disseminate the, those those kind of research findings uh, to a, to a larger audience than than academics have figured out how to do on their own. Tell me if you think of or, or how you think of the idea of of trust in terms of writing for the writing for the general reader, the non academic reader, shall we say? I mean, when I'm reading book reviews or or listening to radio shows, I mean, as, whatever whatever it might be, watching a movie, the main the main thing, the main quality that can make any of those things unappealing, any of those experiences, any any of those media experiences unappealing is, is that it doesn't trust me to stay with it. It doesn't trust me to think mm-hmm. it through. It's terrified that I'm going to click away or turn it off or turn the dial or, or, or watch something else. It's that when I sense that fear on the part of a, of a, of a text or a, or a film or anything um, – that's when it loses me. It loses me by being afraid that it will lose me. Is that is that a concept that has worked its way into any of your thoughts about what you want to publish, uh, essay wise, in, in in the review? Well, it's it's a. I find it less a question about what I want to publish and what I don't, as as a question of how I'm I'm editing a, a particular piece. Part of the kind of problem that we were just that I was just talking about that is the problem of of translation of specialized forms of knowledge. It's always a question for literary culture. Yeah. I grew up reading the New York Times book review. I, my introduction to literary culture was the New York Times book review. I was reading the New York Times book review for a decade before I beca- became an undergraduate. Yeah. Um, so I, 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 you know, I mean, a decade between high school and, and, and undergraduate life. So it was my main source of of, of, of information about about literary culture. Um, I think about the person who is coming to the Los Angeles Review of Books as a high school student or as a college freshman, and they don't have the range of reference um, that uh, that that I have. And um, you start um, dropping names because when you drop the name for a certain audience, what you're doing is getting an entire worldview, an entire um, way of uh, under, understanding the phenomenon under question. Mm-hmm. Uh, out to out out in the open done you're moving on um to do that uh is to exclude every reader that doesn't know that reference mm. right and and to make that reader now i think that kind of reading over your own head is the only way to get involved in mm. in, in 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 literary culture it's you have to read over your head or or you're or you'll never get there right, right? um your your uh your reading should uh, exceed your grasp um, and so I think that the that the that what I what I do is I I, I look for places in in pieces where a, uh, a deeply subordinated clause or a uh, parenthetical phrase can um, make give a little uh, clarity for for readers that are are not already specialists mm. um, uh, and and the and the places where. And and that, that that often works fine because it's not insulting the reader's intelligence if they do know it. Um, it's a kind of uh, it's parenthetically admitting that um, some people know it and some people don't, mm. and both both groups can appreciate that. It seems to me mm. um, the necessity for it. What happens is if you have um, declarative uh, sentences that tell you something that you already know, um, you feel like you're being talked down to you feel you know, you know i think that, that that makes sense right, right. and so we, we avoid that but it's a it's a it's a it's a, a, a kind of line editing issue more than it is a, a question of uh, sorting at the at the front end that word clarity i mean that's that's a a thing that's a quality i look for when i'm reading anything especially essays i look for what reading or writing actually clarity honesty curiosity those are the three top qualities I want or want to have if I'm writing. I presume you look for those as well. What what else ranks at that level for you? I like a little bit of obscurity. Mm. <laughs> as distinct from obscurantism or are we talking as Yes, right. I mean as a distinct from clarity, I guess, right? <laughs> that, that is you know today I to, this morning I was working on a piece that's um, by an academic about an academic book and um and uh it's a piece that um 
had already been gone, had gone through another editor. Um, and the writer was resistant to a lot of that editor's suggestions, um, which is why it got kicked upstairs um, to me to, to work with. Um, one is always um, negotiating with writers about things like clarity. Um, the, the writer may want exactly as much clarity as they have, and the editor may want a little bit more. And when that happens, um, there's a discussion, and the and the and the discussion is um, is is something that when it gets tough, you as an editor you kind of pick your battles. Mm. Um, and so one of the th- sentences I read today, I thought this is really not entirely clear, mm. uh, and I thought I'm not going to fight on this one. This one actually it has a kind of poetic, so somewhat obscure, uh, poetic. Uh, pushing of the reader out into uh, into a kind of uh, a thought that is 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 kind of interesting. Oh. I'm not sure once you come back to the sentence, you then understand the sentence any better, mm. but you've had a kind of interesting thought process as part of that. And it's partly because it's a slightly obscure. It's a slightly off word uh, at the center of it. Um, but it was productive, I thought, a, a productive obscure obscuritanism. Mm. Uh, and that's, and that's okay with me. Right. And so, and, and it's partly because, um, I knew that there were a lot of other things that were more important for me to change. I was going to let that one, let, let that one go by. But also sometimes, um, you know, if you read, you read T.S. Eliot's essays, literary essays, you cannot nail down a few of those sentences. They're, they're just, they're, they're, impo- they're impossible to, to kind of say, okay, never this is never going to happen. This is the, this is the, uh, this is the, this is the, uh, vehicle for that metaphor. This is the tenor. No, it's not really, uh, not really entirely clear. And that's okay, right? Because what he's, what he's doing is making you think really hard about the issues that he's bringing up and the lack of pure clarity, um, is, uh, is helpful in that, in that mission. So I, I, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to, to let the, to let those things go. I do like, um, some humor, uh, you didn't mention that. Um, I, I do. I do think that the, the Actually, I should have mentioned that. That's really. It's for me. It's true too. We, we, yeah. This is you can't underscore it enough because of sometimes the resistance to include humor because that that of course means it's not serious. It's not thinking. If you have humor, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I I will say I, you know this is this is throwing us way back to the to the uh, to the earlier discussion about uh, Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I worried about right off the bat was that we would if we got too um loosey goosey too soon we got too you know we did too much hollywoodish mm. stuff we talked about tv and and film too much which we're, we we do a lot of now but we didn't when we first started out um uh, and we we uh we did we were not as light when we first started out as we are now um or we didn't include as much light stuff mm. and that was partly because i was i was concerned about being dismissed as um, frivolous, right. fluffy, um, la la landish. Uh, right? <laughs> so I, uh, I was, I was careful about that at, at the start. But it was always part of my plan to mm-hmm. kind of open up this arena of discussion to uh, a, a broader array of voices. Mm-hmm. We did a, you know, Alice Weiner, um, who uh, wrote for Spy Magazine and and uh, and has done some New Yorker shouts and murmurs over the years, and a very funny. Writer, uh, he and Barbara Davelman wrote wrote uh, a, a great book recently called um, "How to Profit from the Coming Rapture." <laughs> <laughs> All right, <laughs> getting ahead for those left behind. Uh, you know, he's a very funny guy, and what he wanted to write for us, and it's a very serious piece, but it's about uh, Stephen Potter, the guy who did Lifesmanship, Gamesmanship. Yeah, yes, um, yes. Yeah, and it was a, it was a very funny essay because Alice is a funny guy, and he was appreciating the humor of Stephen Potter, but a very serious piece as well. Um, it was a, a full reading of Potter's entire career and uh, bringing back a, a kind of forgotten mid-century um guy who you know made a film out of one of the books and it was a a, his concepts have remained with us so it's a it's a it's a it's a very interesting piece but it's fun uh i was trying to get ellis to do a um and and some of his friends he's on a um email chain with uh ross chast and and a number of other people um and and i thought it would be fun to get them to all do very short by um reviews of the petraeus biography oh yes um and and it was fine with me if they hadn't read it. I thought that that, that would be a, a fun thing. We have done our first graphic um, graphic review of a graphic novel. Mm. I'd like to do more of that. Um, the, the total word count of that review is probably under a hundred. Mm. Right? But but 
unless you count a thousand yes, words per picture. picture. Right. <laughs> so, uh, um, but so there, there are lots of things that I'm, that, uh, that don't meet, uh, the normal norms of, of, of seriousness that I'm, that I'm, that I'm hoping to add in. But that, that was a completely tangential comment to whatever the question was. What was the question? Not, nothing's tangential. I mean, we're, we're in new territory now, of course. <laughs> you mentioned holding down the Hollywood stuff initially with the Los Angeles Review of Books. And that resonates with me because, you know, starting to write about Los Angeles, when I started myself to write about Los Angeles, I immediately thought, Hollywood's not part of my reality here. So I'm not going to talk about that. The freeways aren't a part of my reality here. The smog is not what it used to be. I, I lived 13 miles from the beach. That's not my reality. All the parts, all the parts of Los Angeles that have been canonically Los Angeles in literature, I just—they have nothing to do with me. I don't have anything to do with them. It's mm. true for millions and millions of people here who all have—they all have an expansive experience of Los Angeles, but it's not—it's not L.A. Los Angeles mm. and. That, to my mind, is where the more interesting Los Angeles is to be found. Tell me how you've – I mean, do you have – have you had any of these rules? This sounds a little rigid, but you know, you mentioned holding down the Hollywood stuff, but staying away from the ways Los Angeles has been written into the ground about over, over the last hundred years. Is that How high up in your mind has a, a priority has that been? Well, I guess in the, to a certain extent um – it's not been a priority at all. I, I do try to get to the beach once a year, um, whether I need to or not. Yes. <laughs> um, and, uh, but when I, when I first got to town, um, people asked me what I did and I would often say I'm a, I'm a writer and an academic. And they said, Oh, uh, you're a writer. Do you have anything you would like me to look at? And they meant a screenplay. Yes. 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 Um, because this was the dinner party culture that I had ended up in. And I, and I, um, and I and over time, of course, I, eventually I wanted to say yes. That's pretty generous. They just offered to look at whatever. Do you have anything? Are you, it's a. It, it may not have been entirely oh, uh, sincere <laughs> in every case, <laughs> but in, uh, but in some cases, you know, you you you, you know, it, for instance, when I when I when I ask it of people, you know, uh, when people tell me that they they love books, I said, uh, and they're and they're writers, I say, mm -hmm. oh, is, is there anything you want to write about for us? Uh, so it's it's a it's a real question. People are always looking for great screenplays here, and and uh, and and there are a lot of incredibly smart people in uh, in the business, and they are on the lookout for smart stuff. So um, um, it didn't surprise me, but it did make me want to write screenplays. I d and so I did. And the fact is that a lot of the people that write for us um, and, and who will always write for us are people that have um, whose main incomes are, are from the business. Mm. Uh, it is when, when you think about writing in LA um, you know, that famous Ernest Hemingway thing, you know, Hollywood is great. You know, you just drive up to the border, you throw, you throw your book over and they throw <laughs> you a bag of money and you leave. That's the perfect relationship of writers to Hollywood. But the fact is that writers in Hollywood have a long history with each other and writing in Los Angeles is often means writing for film and television. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the best writers in Los Angeles often are writing for film and television. And so, uh, that, to that extent, we, there's, it, it would be a bad idea to try to cordon that off. It would be bad for us. It would be bad for who we are. It makes no sense. So we're not doing that. I'm also interested I've, as on a personal level and, uh, and, and for the review in the Hollywood novel and in the Los Angeles novel. So we just did, did Diana Wagman's um, new novel. Uh, I just did an interview with James Elroy. Um, these, these, this is, uh, these are, are people who, who document the city uh, Seth Greenland, who write novels about 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 uh, L.A. and who are um, uh, Hector Tobar, mm -hmm. right? These are people who are um, that I'm I'm very interested in uh, as writers, and who are very interested in L.A. So and and some of what they do uh, is is uses like Diana Wagman has uh, an old star in the middle of her things, uh, Victoria Patterson's. Newport Beach novel. Uh, there, you know, there, there are there are kind of stock characters that show up in these in these um, in these novels necessarily um, because they are representing the culture, and the culture gets represented um, in the same way over and over again because it's the same culture over and over again. So I, I think I'm not I'm not disinterested in that, and the review's not disinterested in that. What um, what I was trying to avoid at the beginning was a sense that the that that uh, we that's all we were um, uh, and and uh, that's all we could we could talk about 
Um, but, but ever, ever since, uh, those first few months, um, it's been, it's been part of, it is part of who we are. You mentioned off mic beforehand that you've lived in Los Angeles 16 years, was it? 16, 17 years, longer than I've lived here. I've only been here about a year and a half. Before I came, I wrote an article for uh, The Millions, the site you mentioned, which runs a lot of book articles. It was about placing myself here by books not normally written about, Los Angeles novels not normally written about in, in, in the kind of literature of Los Angeles roundups. Um, Steve Erickson, yes, I included, but, you know, like a Vanessa Place or a Karen Te Yamashita. Uh, even Christopher Isherwood isn't mentioned so much anymore, so I worked him in. But mm-hmm. point being, using literature to place myself here, was that a technique for you as well, uh, using using the literature of Los Angeles as a way to sort of begin to inhabit the place uh, properly? Yeah, absolutely. I, in fact, I, w- for the first... Uh seven or eight years that I was here, I was still teaching at Iowa. Um, and I would, I was teaching one semester a year at Iowa and I started teaching a class there on the, on the LA novel. Um, and, um, some of that started before I moved here. Some fairly coincidentally, I, I, I directed a dissertation of a PhD student at Iowa on the Hollywood novel. John, um, uh, Paris Springer, uh, wrote a great, Great dissertation, which is a, is, a, is, a, is a very good book on the Hollywood novel, the, the most complete book on the Hollywood novel. Well, what did the syllabus look like for the Los Angeles novel course? Well, I started with um, some early 20s stuff. Um, um, Merton of the Movies by a guy named Harry Leon uh, Wilson, who was uh, – Gertrude Stein said it was her favorite novel uh, of the 1920s. She was lying, nonetheless. <laughs> she was being cute and clever and 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 everything, but she but nonetheless she said it. Uh, and it is a very interesting book. Mm-hmm. It, it's been made into four very bad movies. Four very bad <laughs> over the course of one with Red Skelton. Mm-hmm. Um, not, none of them quite kind of get at what the book is about because the book is um, is about subjectivity mm-hmm. and about the way um, subjectivity gets formed in the filmic age. Um, and this is 1922. Uh, also, 1922 or 1923 is Edgar Rice Burroughs, mm-hmm. The Girl from Hollywood, which is um, a fantastic, um, you know, kind of casting couch abuse, uh, cocaine, mm-hmm. um, derelict film directors, uh, nasty producers, uh, the, the villainy of the uh, that is uh, that's available in the novels of Bruce Wagner. Uh, and and it is already there uh, in 1923 in Edgar Rice Burroughs. It's very uh, fun, interesting uh, novel. So I start with those, and then the Pat Hobby stories. Um, th- these are these are books from the 20s and 30s that are remain very um, contemporary in all sorts of ways. And I run it up through um, through Elroy and Bruce Wagner um, with stops with at what makes Sammy run and um, the kind of the the, the classics. And it's fifteen weeks, uh, fifteen weeks semester, fifteen novels, um, kind of course, or fifteen or seventeen novels, and and uh, and yeah, that that those 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 helped me form my sense of the of the city. But what I did um, when I first got here was the same thing that I do when I'm when I'm traveling, which is I I started to wander. Being less virtuous than you, I was not on my bike. I was on my, <laughs> I was in my car. You probably and, had a little more money than I do. I should be working more. Let's face it. <laughs> well, um, maybe that's it. If you need to ride anywhere, let me let me, <laughs> let me know. Um, I, but I would just I would just cruise around the city and I would ro- wander through you know down, um, just keep going down Eighth Street, Tenth Street, Fiftieth Street, Hundredth Street, Hundred Street. Just keep going going down and go wandering around and kind of trying to get an internal map of the of the city and because the city is um has has ethnic enclaves everywhere um to to wander the city is to wander through the the various uh immigrant cultures that make it up uh and that's and that's incredibly interesting as well um so i i and 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 as you were saying earlier your your kind of tip your sense that you get from film tv novel of la versus your lived experience of la uh to get to drive that full plat right basically you know 
Hollywood as it's represented or LA as it's represented takes place on three pages of the Thomas Guide. Mm. I mean, the Thomas Guide's probably yeah. already been electronified before you got here, but <laughs> when I got here, we were still using the Thomas Guide to get around. Uh, and out of the 220 pages of maps that are the, you know, the map, the map of Los Angeles, the Hollywood novel tends to take place in, in three or four of those pages. Mm. Uh, LA novel tends to take place in about 10 of those pages. Um, so, uh, Oh, the other one of the other one books uh, on that list is Chester Himes, um, uh, great n- novel of uh, L.A. shipbuilding in the forties. John Fonte, you know, th- these are these are people who t- kind of take you into other L.A.s than uh, than what makes Sammy run or or the Pat Hobby story. So um, that that was uh, that's why I had a, I had a literary introduction to Los Angeles. I also had uh, a, a kind of a car tour. Mm. Um, version of, of, of what, what Los Angeles meant. And, uh, and the car tour was, was the, was the more accurate, was the more kind of complete, um, version of Los Angeles than, um, than the, than the literary one. 16, 17 years here. Do you still wander? Can you still wander? Yeah. I still end up in neighborhoods that I have, that I hadn't, haven't seen before. I still end up on streets that I haven't been on before. Absolutely. It's a, it's a big place as, a, as, as, you know, kind of famously large, uh, geographically. Um, and, uh, and when you th- what what makes LA LA includes the whole valley. It includes uh, San Pedro. It includes um, you know it's a, it includes the the, the uh, San Gabriel Valley as well as the San Fernando Valley. And so you know so, um, and uh, and and because I teach at Riverside, um, for me my sense of uh, what this place is extends into the Inland Empire as well. Yeah, I'm I'm still I'm still uh, I'm still learning uh, constantly what what makes LA LA. Um, and that's, that's in part, um, you know, I, I played in, in, uh, blues bands, uh, for, for a long time in LA as well. And that took me into neighborhoods that, and, uh, and communities that I wouldn't have been in otherwise. You know, there's this, this group called musicians, very strange. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, no, it was, it was, that was, that was, that was, that was, that was part of my education about what Los, what Los Angeles was. Mm. Now that I'm running the Los Angeles Review of Books, and I'm trying to write, raise money for it. I'm I'm meeting people that uh, that I wouldn't have met otherwise. Um, that are involved in the in the nonprofit world. That are involved in uh, in philanthropy in town. And that's a that's a another um, kind of level of the city, layer of the city that I that I didn't otherwise have access to. Finally, do you, do you see literature catching up to the sheer scope of Los Angeles? Can it? Has it? We just don't know. We don't know, and and the the, the easy answer is no. Mm. No li- li- literature is for all its desire to be inclusive, for all its cosmopolitanism, for all its uh, attempt to connect. Um, obviously, no one book can do it all, um, and uh, not even the full collection of books can do it all. The the I when I r- started this dissertation about 1903, part of what drove it was this sense that. Um, Literary history has tended to be written, glanced over so much, uh, uh, ignored so much in order to kind of make the argument about some tradition or some phenomenon or some genre or some school. Um, it had it had to kind of just ignore the the vast majority of what had been written. So I thought, well, I'm going to just I'm only going to look at stuff published in this one year, and I'll, then I'll really be able to know what literature is covering and what it's not. And of course, I I read about a I don't know, maybe 3% of the books published in, in 1903. Mm. Uh, I, I know that I read more books published in 1903 than anybody that was alive in 1903. Right. Um, right. Cause I spent five or six years reading that year and most people only spent a year doing it, yeah. <laughs> even if they were doing it professionally. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I, I am, and, and that whole, that record, uh, that, that I, uh, that I accumulated of, of uh, that sense I accumulated of what was out there, um, was, you know, a, a tiny fraction. So literature, even if somehow literature, there were enough people writing. Um, I also just wrote a novel that has some autobiographical content. Um, it's a very, very tiny little slice of my life, obviously. Um, uh, this is the, I'm just like doing a series of random statements related to the question, and then I, I'm going to pull them together. Trust me. Sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, Herbert Spencer's three-volume autobiography, where he tells you what he had for lunch every single day of his life, um, also never mentions him masturbating, for instance. Right? I mean, there's there's all sorts of things that are not in this 
over, over long, over detailed biography of her experience. Right? Life is not representable um, in its fullness. Uh, and that's just simple fact. And so even if everybody wrote a novel about their life every day, right? Every, every day a bloom's day for every person on earth, we're still going to get a very partial record. Um, uh, although it would be easier because you could say that all anybody is ever doing is writing. Um, uh, and that would, that would simplify things, but no, it's a, it's, it's simply a, the question of the question of representation, uh, as in the, as in the use of the word in representative democracy, um, is, is always a question of, of how, uh, something is getting, uh, distilled or kind of focused into a, a you know, all the, 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 the prismatic, uh, focused into a single beam. Uh, that's the, that's just the nature of the, of the, of the, of the world and of the, of writing. I've been speaking here in the headquarters of the Los Angeles Review of Books in Silver Lake with Tom Lutz. He is the founding editor of that publication, and it, of course, quickly has become one of the websites if you're engaged in literary culture in America, or outside of America, indeed, you've got to read. Tom, thanks so much. Absolutely my pleasure. Thanks. This has been Notebook on Cities and Culture. I've been Colin Marshall. You can keep up with the cultural creators, internationalists, and observers of the urban scene on the show at colinmarshall.org. Thanks. And special thanks to everyone who backed this season on Kickstarter. Danny Bolson, Brad and Laramie on Movies, Paul Doyle, Umberto Grant, Matt Howie, Andrew Hovenick, Mark Hines, Mary Gillander, Eric Graham, Will Graham, John French, Andrew Philippon Jr., Kimberly Hahn, Chris Kay, Andy Cooney, Mark Larson, Rebecca O'Malley, Michael O'Regan, Gail Poole, Blake Riley, Superfan Giovanni, Aidan Nullman, Adam Schaefer, Rob Schultz, Scott Schenker, Cam Smith, Kevin Smokler, Adam Sutherland, TSD, Thomas Unterberger, Matt Warren, and Wayne Wright.